Hello, everybody, and welcome to our podcast. We will be exploring ibogaine, a hallucinogenic substance used in West African religious ceremonies. It has caught the eye of scientists for its ability to help individuals overcome opiate addiction. This novel treatment is currently being studied throughout the world and has been shown to produce long-lasting benefits. My name is Lauren Kozik. I'm a senior psychology neuroscience student at UNCN. And my name is Bex Logan. I am also a senior psychology major neuroscience minor at UNC Asheville. I've been working in the addiction and mental health field for five years now and have seen firsthand the devastating effects of the physical and mental toll addiction takes on an individual and their friend and family systems. And my name is Joe. I am a senior who is majoring in psychology and minoring in neuroscience here at the University of North Carolina at Asheville, just as my fellow group members. So I think it is fair to say that the three of us truly have a strong passion and desire to help individuals that have fallen into the trap of addiction. It is truly unbelievable that in the 21st century America, we are still using a judicial practice that has failed us for the past 50 years, ever since the quote-unquote war on drugs began. Today, we will discuss many aspects regarding America's current and ongoing war on drugs and how Big Pharma has played a huge part in all of this, as well as many other aspects of addiction. The opioid epidemic is a serious issue nowadays that needs to be addressed. According to the CDC, opioid addiction takes the lives of 128 people a day. That's about 46,720 people a year, a staggering amount of people. So why is it so many people find themselves addicted to opioids? Opioids cause the brain to release an abnormally high amount of dopamine. When concentrations are too high, the brain will normally shut down further dopamine release through the use of autoreceptors, which acts as brakes and puts a hold on further dopamine release. Opioids bypass this mechanism, which leads to abnormally high amounts of dopamine in the synapse, which makes the drug feel extremely rewarding. When opioids are repeatedly exposed to one system, the brain tries to catch up and increase the number and strength of these brakes e.g. increasing the number and strength of autoreceptors. This inhibits further dopamine release and opioids are needed to offset this effect. When one does not have opioids in their system, withdrawal happens partly due to this dopamine deprivation. Addiction also causes tolerance, making one need more and more of the drug in order to feel the rewarding effects. This can be dangerous since toxic opioid dose increases the inhibitory effects of GABA, which causes breathing to slow and eventually stop. Current treatment is limited in effectiveness, yet there's a very promising treatment which is illegal in the United States due to its psychedelic nature. Ibogaine, an extract of Tabernathe aboga, is a perennial rainforest plant found mostly in Gabon, Africa. When ingested, it produces euphoria, psychological insight, and an altered state of consciousness. The substance seems promising to target the biological underpinnings of addiction, alleviate opioid withdrawal, and diminish cravings. It's unfortunate that due to its classification as a psychedelic, people in the United States don't have access to it. With the current high death toll, we are desperate for an effective treatment for opiates. Desperation often leads people to seek other solutions. Exactly. Due in part of this desperation, people from the U.S. who are suffering from opioid addiction seek out treatment in countries where it's legal or unregulated. This is actually how our research reported in the article, Treatment of Opioid Use Disorder with Ibogaine by Dr. Thomas Kingsley Brown and Dr. Kenneth Alper was conducted. This is a study which inspired our podcast, but before we dive into it, let's explain the history of Ibogaine. 
So Ibogaine was first used for spiritual ceremonies in indigenous tribes in West Africa. It's primarily been used in the Bawiti religion during puberty initiation rites and includes a powerful hallucinogenic state for at least 48 hours. So how did it uh, make its way into the public eye? So Howard Lotsoff, who is actually from New York, and six of his friends were addicted to heroin and said they were looking for a new high and ended up accidentally stumbling upon Ibogaine when he was 19 in 1962. Five of the seven immediately were able to quit using heroin and stay sober from it. What did Howard do with that information? It became his life's work to campaign for Ibogaine to end addiction to opioids. He started a foundation called the Dora Weiner Foundation and created a patent for the use of Ibogaine as treatment for both opioid and cocaine addiction. He also convinced a Belgian company to produce it in capsules and give it to people addicted to opioids in the Netherlands. He brought Ibogaine to the attention of the FDA and almost got research studies started, but there was a lack of funding. There's a stigma against Ibogaine treatment associated with over 30 deaths. MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies website, says that these deaths could have been prevented if there were proper screening for medical conditions and if opioids were absent for 24 hours before treatment. Electrolyte balance and proper medical monitoring is also necessary to ensure safety. It is crucial that one is properly stabilized from withdrawal prior to ibogaine treatment to avoid liver and cardiac complications that have led to death. Trial and error is unfortunately part of the process when it comes to studying any type of drug. Since we now know these factors uh, influence the safety of this substance, future clinical trials can be conducted safely. These factors are why it's important to only be administered this substance under medical supervision. Otherwise, it could be dangerous. Correct. Although for the majority of reports of individuals dying from taking Ibogaine, these have been associated with individuals who are not under the care of a medical doctor. When taken under the care of supervision of a doctor, Ibogaine is considered to not only be a safe, but much safer and more effective alternative to other currently available drug addiction treatments like methadone and suboxone. Also, it's extremely rare for psychedelics to be fatal. Most of them are non-toxic and do not cause bodily harm. Ibogaine is a rare exception, but exceptions like this definitely don't help the stigma against these substances. People may use this instance as confirmation bias and apply it to the misinformed stigma of all psychedelics being quote-unquote dangerous. This stigma is supported by propaganda rather than science. One must take history into account when thinking about psychedelic substances. The war on drugs was spawned by the Nixon administration in 1971 after drug use in America was becoming more prevalent. However, it was the use of drugs within the U.S. military that was becoming more concerning of all. As drug use in the military throughout the Vietnam War exploded, psychedelic drug use in particular became more demonized. There also enacted these laws as a means of control over people of color in our country. How has this affected Ibogaine in particular? Because of the war on drugs and the stigma attached to LSD and other psychedelics, Ibogaine, which is a Schedule One drug, has remained largely out of reach of researchers in the U.S. I want to remind everyone that even marijuana is still listed as a Schedule One drug, which means that there is no medical purpose and no reason to be studied. Marijuana is sold recreationally and is accepted medicinal drug in several U.S. states. In fact, it has become so accepted by most Americans that it has become decriminalized in many places throughout the U.S., including our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. 
even though it's very hard to get these studies approved, the FDA has approved some studies which involve Schedule One substances like MDMA, marijuana, and psilocybin. Because of these legal reasons, psychedelic research is usually done abroad. Research on Ibogaine's potential benefits in helping people overcome addiction has largely remained unexplored in the U.S. Lauren, you mentioned that there are ways to study some Schedule One drugs. So how long does it usually take for them to get approval for research studies? And what about Ibogaine? It can take years for studies like this to get approved. As of now, Ibogaine studies in the United States are only limited to animal models. No experimental clinical trials have been conducted on humans in the U.S., but observational studies have. This means that they have studied people who have traveled out of the country to get treatment. I wonder if the pharmaceutical industry plays a role in the limitations of clinical research. Big Pharma in the U.S. not only produces the opioids, but also produces Narcan, Methadone, Suboxone, and other treatments for opioid addiction and overdose. They profit off the entire cycle of abuse of opioids. In fact, just six days before this recording, the makers of OxyContin, Purdue Pharma, pled guilty to three federal charges relating to its part in creating the current opioid epidemic. Yet no one from the company will be doing prison time. However, when the largest shareholder of Purdue Pharma found out they would be found guilty of these charges, they took $10 billion and placed it into a family trust so this money could not be taken away from them. The company was then found guilty, fined $8 billion, and then immediately filed bankruptcy, claiming that they could not pay this amount of money and it was not in their reserves. The company subsequently handed over all operations to the federal government. This means the U.S. federal government is now the manufacturer, supplier, distributor, and prosecutor of OxyContin. I think this shows us how complicated and dynamic this topic truly is and the politics involved. It's no wonder people are seeking alternative treatments outside of the United States. What is the experience like at one of these treatment centers? Most treatment centers are unregulated. Journalist Jonathan Levinson investigated treatment at a clinic like this in Mexico. He interviewed Emily Albert, who was suffering from opioid addiction. For 10 years, she was a daily user. During her treatment, she had a vision of her son that led for her to stop doing opioids. On a two-month follow-up, she was still sober. Treatment at these centers can cost about 5 to 12 grand, but most treatment centers accept sliding scale payment. This clinic does EKGs and blood tests to avoid the potential cardiac or liver conditions that could lead to death. The nurse inserts the IV, hooks up the EKG, and gives three Ibogaine pills. They play calm instrumental music and it appears as though they are asleep when actually they are experiencing vivid hallucinations. The psychedelic experience is very important to this part of the process and it is more than just seeing colors and patterns. Ibogaine is a tryptamine and causes hallucinogenic effects by being a 5-H2A agonist like LSD and psilocybin. The action of many psychedelics allows the brain to communicate in a very unique way and allows new neuropathways to form. This helps break down narrow, constructive thought patterns and promotes profound psychological insight. Patient-provider dialogue is usually minimal to help one dive into their psyche without any external distractions. That seems very profound. It seems like this is what a lot of people seek out when using psychedelics recreationally. What are, if any, risks of the use of Ibogaine? Ibogaine can make it hard for one to walk since it's such a strong drug, and many get nauseous from ingesting plant matter. It's not an experience people seek out recreationally like other hallucinogens. 
So because there is little to no risk of abuse, does this at all mean we're on the way towards more research now to be able to regulate and explore Ibogaine as a treatment option? Although psychedelic research is limited and there are a lot of hoops to jump through to research these chemicals, we're in the beginning of a psychedelic renaissance. The FDA is starting to realize the potential therapeutic benefit of these drugs and have approved of multiple clinical trials. MAP studies are truly progressing in the field of psychotherapy and are on a mission to replace the stigma of psychoactive substances with science. How are they going about that? So MAPS is best known for their studies regarding MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. The FDA has decided that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is a breakthrough treatment and it is expected to be legalized in about two or three years. I believe this legalization will initiate a widespread paradigm shift in our society. People who are misinformed about mind-altering substances may start to realize their medical and therapeutic benefits, which will hopefully create some policy changes. Although MDMA for PTSD is MAP's main focus, they are passionate about all forms of psychedelic psychotherapy. They are currently studying LSD for anxiety associated with life-threatening illnesses and are actually the ones who funded the study which inspired our podcast. Clinical use of psychedelics has a promising future. How did Dr. Brown and Dr. Alper study Ibogaine for opioid use disorder? They did an observational study, which contained 30 individuals who met the DSM-5 criteria for opioid use disorder with physiological dependence. They studied participants before and after traveling to Baja, Mexico, where they were administered Ibogaine for opioid addiction. Before Ibogaine administration, they were evaluated using the Addiction Severity Index light version. Physical vitals were measured to ensure they were healthy enough to complete treatment. They also took the 16-item opioid withdrawal scale a day after being stabilized with 90 milligrams of oxycodone as a way to control the onset of withdrawal symptoms. Opioid addiction can really take over one's mind and body. I can only imagine the struggle and hardships they experienced. Withdrawal symptoms often include muscle pain, nausea, tremors, sweating, increased heart rate, anxiety, and insomnia. Since the severity of withdrawal symptoms increase over time, it is important to control for this factor. Exactly. A day after they were stabilized with oxycodone, they were given a test dose of ibogaine HCL at 3 mg per kilogram of body weight. This test dose is administered to evaluate a person's response to a drug and rule out allergic reactions. No individuals in the study had an adverse reaction, and it actually ended up alleviating most withdrawal symptoms. A flood dose was then given two hours afterward, and which was about 12 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So what exactly is a flood dose? It is given to ensure that participants have a vivid psychedelic experience, which is part of the therapeutic process. During their experience, providers and participants had minimal dialogue to help promote introspective psychological insight. EKG and blood pressure were continually monitored during treatment to ensure safety. After Ibogaine made its way out of the body and they returned to a normal state of consciousness, detoxification outcomes were measured through post-test opioid withdrawal scale, which decreased an average of 17 points. Nice. That's definitely a significant increase. Just so listeners know, Ibogaine stays in your body for about 15 to 24 hours. This is a long time to experience severe withdrawals if one does have opioids in their system. Alleviating withdrawals makes it much easier to abstain from opioid use. 50% of the participants were opioid-free for one month after treatment, 33 for three months, 20% for six months, 37 for nine months, and 23% at one year. 
Addiction severity index scores were significantly less for up to nine months after I began medication. Do you have an insight into why addiction severity scores were only slightly lower for up to nine months? Ibogaine influences the expression of GDNF. GDNF promotes the survival and development of dopaminergic neurons, which are negatively affected by addiction. The enhanced expression of GDNF is not permanent. This upregulation of the GDNF seems to be the primary mechanism for Ibogaine's anti-addictive properties. When researchers inhibited this pathway in rat models, Ibogaine failed to produce the same reduction in substance-seeking behavior compared to rats who did not have this pathway inhibited. The reason why the study had significantly lower addiction severity scores for only nine months after treatment may be because the expression of GDNF is not permanent. I wonder if we would see even more effective results if one repeated Ibogaine treatment every few months. It seems like that may be the case, but only controlled experiments can say for sure. I know, right? We are getting there. Shout out to the organizations such as MAPS and all the scientists who are going through extensive hurdles to get these studies approved. You guys are advancing mental health treatment, which will turn into saving numerous lives. Speaking of saving numerous lives, how does our government handle drug-addicted individuals when they are caught with the drugs they've become dependent on? Do they send them to treatment so they can get the help they need? No, most states do not offer treatment options in their incarcerated populations, not like you may think or expect. The current criminal justice approach relies on a counterproductive system of punishment, not rehabilitation. The fact that there is little to no drug addiction treatment made available in the U.S. drug-addicted incarcerated population is only exacerbating the problem. For example, the California Department of Corrections Rehabilitation found that inmates who did not take part in a drug treatment option during and after incarceration had double the rates of returning to prison compared to those who did. So why are we still using a system of punishment instead of a system of true rehabilitation, particularly when statistics have shown us that the current policies in place are counterproductive? It seems to be the most profound question that needs to be answered, and it is the government who needs to explain itself to the taxpaying citizens to protect and to serve its people, the same people that provide the money that is funding these failed systems, policies, and methods of dealing with the U.S. drug-addicted population. There seems to be misinformation regarding the cost of treatment compared to the cost of prison. I've met people who are quite against reforms like this, thinking it would cost taxpayers much more money to give them treatment. But even if that were the case, this boils down to a social justice issue. Nobody deserves to be thrown in jail because they're struggling. Many drug users are nonviolent and are a threat to themselves more than anyone else. True. The media has played drug users to be violent people and people with mental health struggles as dangerous, yet that's rarely the case. And yes, it's actually way cheaper to treat them in state-run facilities than to incarcerate them. For example, in 2010, it cost $45,000 per year to incarcerate a single prisoner. And yet seven years later, that increased to over 70000 a year, an incredibly high figure, particularly when you take into account that sending an individual to prison for the first time doubles their chances that they will once again return to prison. So how does that compare to treatment options? The average cost to send someone to state-funded outpatient treatment for one year costs 14.4 times less than incarceration, while long-term residential drug treatment costs 3.8 times less than incarceration. A staggering difference, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would say so. However, most private residential rehabilitation centers cost anywhere from $30,000 to $90,000 for a 30- to 90-day stay. 
average can run $500 a day. That greatly limits a socioeconomic class that can access private rehabilitation centers. Incarceration and financial obstacles end up denying life-changing treatments that can alleviate withdrawal symptoms and decrease drug-seeking behavior. The opioid epidemic is a national crisis, and in order to stop it, we need to make structural changes. So one last thing before we go. What do you hope listeners take home from this podcast? Why should they care about Ibogaine? Addiction is a severely misunderstood mental health condition, and in order to diminish this epidemic, we need to treat people suffering from addiction with compassion rather than contempt. We need to remember that addiction is due to neurophysiological changes in the brain, which perpetuates drug use. Effective, long-lasting treatment is desperately needed. The fact that Ibogaine not only targets the biological aspects of addiction, but also promotes introspective insight, which helps promote behavioral changes, is huge. As long as this treatment is administered in a controlled medical setting, it would be quite beneficial to the opioid crisis we face today. This won't just benefit people suffering from addiction, but also society as a whole. Addiction is hard on both individuals and their loved ones. Ibogaine can give the individual a better chance to live a full and meaningful life. Furthermore, addiction only leads to decreased gross domestic product, lowers levels of life satisfaction, increases crime, raises recidivism rates, and quite frankly becomes a huge burden on our governmental resources. The opioid epidemic and all of the factors surrounding it are a social justice issue that needs to be addressed. Well said, Joe. Thanks to all of our listeners, and we really hope we've inspired you to take action against the opioid epidemic and strive to eliminate the stigma against addiction. I'm Lauren Kozik. I'm Bex Logan. And I'm Joe Euler. Have a beautiful rest of your day.